Sunlock today to worship and to have you with us. Uh, happy June. I know we're well into June, but I uh, hope your summer is going well. Big week this week at Glenlock. Who knows what's about to happen at Glenlock starting tonight? Vacation. Bible school. So Erica, will you, Erica's going to make an announcement, then Michael Creed is going to read our text and pray. And uh, let's put our hearts and minds, focus on the Lord and, and His work, His will, His desire for us. Erica, I'm sure, has a lot to say about Vacation Bible School. Thank you, Erica, for what you're doing. All right, I'm going to do the rest of the announcements, too. I'm going to do them first so I don't forget them. Um, youth camp, see Bryson. Rockridge and Camp Wild, see me. I can tell you more about that. Sports camp, that's a little ways away. We'll hold off on that for right now. The assisted listening devices are in the back. Go get one if you need one. And the parking lot paving project is coming along, 21,000 race. So far, so that's really good. Um, as far as Vacation Bible School goes, it starts tonight. It's kickoff night. We're going to have pizza, snow cone trucks coming, and just water slides that Pam and Terry Lane are going to provide. Um, the time tonight is 6 to 7.30. And then it's just going to be real fun. Bring your bathing suits that kids can wear them, a towel change of clothes. We can change in the children's building. Um, it's normally a really, really fun night. Um, the lessons and stuff for VBS start tomorrow. The time is wrong on the flipping around thing up here. VBS, um, the workers and kids can eat at 5.30, and then it starts at 6, and it goes to 8.30 every night, not 7.30. It's longer than an hour and a half. Um, all the workers that I've talked to and haven't talked to yet, I've got your T-shirts and a schedule in the children's building. If you guys can meet me out there afterwards, some of us are coming to help finish decorating today. If you want to come, you can. If not, I think we've got it covered, but you're more than welcome to. And also, if you haven't decided to sign up and you want to come help, just come see me. We can find a place for you, I promise. Um, but most importantly, y'all, just be in prayer for me and all the workers and the kids that come and so we can touch some lives this week because it's going to be a really, really awesome week, and I'm super excited. Thank y'all. Okay, hey, y'all, let's, let's hit up this Isaiah 55. We're going to start in verse 8. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than, you, than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. this morning we're really quiet if y'all go ahead and stand we're gonna sing amazing uh, amazing we're gonna sing <laughs>
reminds us that it's because of your grace um, that we're here and it's because of your grace that we can be set free God um, free from all of the chains this world tries to put on us God Lord this morning may we worship freely um, and openly to you God Lord may we praise your name and may we be reminded of your gospel God as we study it this morning Lord we love you and praise you and thank you so much in Jesus name I pray amen you may be seated
last week. Bryson, our youth minister, preached, and he, in his sermon, sang that song. And when you saw him, when he's, well, he didn't sing the song. He was going to sing with us this morning, actually, but it just didn't work out. But he, um, he said the words to those songs, and he started reading through it. And I usually sit in the back, and it was so cool how everybody in the room almost was mouthing that song with them. You know, and it's interesting that as a church, we just have songs that we love. And I think we love that song for the exact reason Bryson preached last week. And that's that it just ministers to our heart, you know. And in the summer, it's so important for us to be reminded that the anchor is going to hold and we're going to travel and we're going to journey. But our anchor is right here, right? Our anchor is in Christ everywhere we go. And if you'll stand with us, talking about that anchor being in Christ, we're going to sing in Christ alone together.
pray. Lord, I just come to you now, Lord. I just thank you for an opportunity just to be in your house this morning, Lord. I pray would you that you would be with Neil as he comes, Lord. And I pray that you would just fill him with your spirit and fill him with the words that you'd have us to hear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Todd. Hey, as the children leave, if the rest of us turn to Colossians chapter 3, I'll try to get this head gear situated. I didn't go through it with Randy earlier. So, um, hey, Colossians chapter 3. So, Bryson did or did not sing last week? He did not? Okay, good. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to have to top that because... That's, that's not at all what I'm prepared to do, and I'm sure it's not what Bryson prepared to do as well. But I am very grateful that in my absence last week, I'm, I know several of you gave me great feedback on, on what God said through his word through Bryson, and I'm very grateful for Bryson's ministry to our youth and really to our, our church at large, and grateful for Brooke and her um, continuing to play in, in the absence of, of Joe and Judy. So in Colossians chapter 3, a couple of weeks ago, we were in verses 1 through 17, and the whole point is that the gospel that saves us also changes us. And so Paul, in his letters, the first couple of chapters, he said basically, this is who Christ is, and this is what Christ has done. Now that you have been raised up with Jesus, this is who you are, and this is the life that matches the gospel. You know, grace that would save my soul, yet leave my life exactly the same, is less than amazing grace. That's a borrowed quote. But let me say that again. Grace that would save my soul, but leave my life unchanged, is less than amazing. But let's be honest, that's, that's what a lot of people are seeing in, in, in our lives, is that, you know, we say to ourselves, well, I'm, I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. Therefore, I can go on about my life and, and me still live with my ideas and my dreams and my goals. And so what Paul is telling us is that that is not what happens. What happens is we are progressively transformed. In other words, those who are justified, they will be sanctified. And those who are being sanctified will ultimately be glorified. Well, Pastor Neil, what does that life look like? Well, it looks like what we've seen in Colossians chapter 3. So I'm going to pick up with verse 18. And the title of the sermon today is Personal Application. After every sermon that, that I preach or Bryson preaches or your Sunday school teacher teaches, you ought to say to yourself, okay, what shall I do? I have heard it said that at the end of every good sermon, you ought to say, what shall we do? When John the Baptist preached that Jesus was coming and he was baptizing and telling people to repent, they came to John and they said, well, what do you want us to do? And he told the crowds as they were coming to be baptized, hey, if you've got two coats, share with one who doesn't have any. If you've got food, share with the one who doesn't have any. The tax collectors came to him and they said, well, what do we do? John the Baptist said, what you need to do is be fair and honest. And quit taking more than you should. The soldiers came to him. They said, well, what do you want us to do? He said, quit using force in, in, in situations where you shouldn't. And be content with the money that you're making. 
at the end of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, they said, well, Peter, what shall we do? He had preached Christ. And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every single one of you, for the forgiveness of sin. So the point is, there's always some personal application. But if you're like me, you often say to yourself, man, I, I wish they could have heard that. <laughs> You know, you've heard me tell before the guy who every Sunday after he left, he told the preacher, man, you, you really told him today. <laughs> and this went on and on. Well, it snowed and happened that this was the only guy who showed up at church on a particular Sunday. The pastor said to himself, I've got him. He's the only one here. <laughs> he preached his heart out for 30-some-odd minutes, and on the way out the door, the pastor couldn't wait. You know, what's this guy going to say? <laughs> And the guy says, Pastor, if they had been here, you would have told them. <laughs> no, no personal application. So what, 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 what we have in Colossians chapter 3 is a long list. And let's be honest with ourselves. This is a very convicting chapter. And then it holds to us what God expects and what God demands and commands. And so I've already preached verses 1 through 17. I should have assigned this one to Bryson. <laughs> Look at what verse 18 says, and that's where I'm going to pick up as the chapter continues. I really think in verses 1 through 17, he was telling everybody how they ought to live. Now that you've been raised with Christ, let the word of God richly dwell within you. He was speaking to the church at large, and now he addresses particular people and particular circumstances. And so he says, wives, and then the New American Standard says, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands. So notice how he's getting particular. He's almost pointing people out, right? Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, there's something for you to do. Be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Hey, fathers, any fathers in the room? <laughs> Next Sunday. Hey, do not exasperate your children so that they may not lose heart. Slaves, any slaves in the congregation? Well, in Paul's particular context, 35% of the people living under the Roman Empire were enslaved. That's a lot of people. That's a large group of the population. Does the gospel apply to them at all? Yeah. Look at what he says. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service, literally eye service, what they can see as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Not going through the motions, but sincerely and passionately. As for the Lord, rather than for men. Knowing, listen, the gospel tells us this, that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. And that without partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, you grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Why? 
Look at this. Knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Then I want to read this, the verses 2 through 6 because I think this is how we undergird or support what he's just said. How are we going to do this? Well, here's how. Verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God may open up to us a door for the word that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Paul is saying the gospel applies in every circumstance, in every place. Are you a wife? Are you a husband? Are you a servant? Are you a master? Are you in prison? Verse 4, in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward the outsiders, the unbelievers, making the most of the opportunity. Then he says in verse 6, Hey, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. As I stop, there's enough personal practical application for us all to be busy, right, the rest of our lives. Father, there's so much here that you expect of us, and we gratefully say thank you, Jesus, for Christ has fulfilled the law's demands that we could never live up to perfectly. Texts like this reveal that we are sinners and we've fallen short of your glory and your demands. But it's also very encouraging because we know not only did Christ die to save us from the penalty of sin, but Jesus lives and the gospel says he will live in us, those who believe, to empower us to begin to fulfill your design for marriage, for the home, for the workplace, and just for personal living in your world and in your kingdom. Thank you, Father, for the amazing grace that not only saves us, but transforms us. Now may we not only believe the gospel, but live out a life that matches the gospel, both for the church and the strengthening of the church, but also as a witness to the community and the world at large. May we relate rightly to the outsiders so that through the power of the gospel they may be brought in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's be honest. What Paul is talking about is a really big deal because all of us feel the weight of marriage. We feel the weight of child rearing, how to raise our children, our grandchildren, the the responsibility, and how to, how to function well in the workplace, which is what most commentators do, since slavery and servitude, as, as known in the Roman Empire, is not what we have today, but the principles that Paul lays down ultimately led to slavery being abolished over time in certain cultures. All of us recognize that marriage, child raising, and work those are three crucial areas, aren't they? I mean, what's going on at home and what's going on at work? I guess the other area is church and community life. And I think he addresses those in verses 1 through 17. And let's be honest, marriage and parenting and work exposes who you really are. 
Timothy Keller, one of my favorite pastors, pastors in New York City, and he calls marriage a Mack truck in life. (laughs) What in the world does that mean? This is what he said. He said, marriage is like a Mack truck crossing a bridge. And when that Mack truck crosses that bridge, it is going to expose the integrity or the strength or weaknesses of that bridge. And so when marriage comes through your life, it's going to reveal who you really are, right? It's going to test the structure of that bridge. Well, I feel the same way about parenting. I feel the same way about the workplace, that those are three crucial areas now the Mack truck illustration really hits home with me because growing up, my father in the logging business, they used a lot of Mack trucks. In fact, I, I confirmed this with my dad a, a couple of weeks ago because I already had this on, on my mind that one time he was working in Troop County and the trucks that he were, was loading, he, he, he wanted because of geography to cross a certain wooden bridge in Troop County. The county says, you can't go across that bridge. It won't hold up those trucks. Well, Dad says, well, what if we reinforce the bridge? What if we strengthen the bridge? And Troop County allowed Dad, in a more economical way, (laughs) to cross that bridge. But first, we had to reinforce it. So what I remember is that my grandfather and I bought some lumber, big nails, and we went down there and with sweat equity and a few choice words that might not have been grace. (laughs) We reinforced the bridge so the truck could pass over. As I think about this text, that's what I, I want us to envision for my marriage, for my responsibility in raising my children, for how I function in the workplace, those key areas of life, What's God's will? What's God's design? And what is Paul saying about how we reinforce those areas? Because if you're off in any of these areas, it affects every aspect of life. Think about it. You're at the Braves game, enjoying the Braves game, trying to. But if something's not right at work, you're worried about it the whole time. You may be out enjoying something else, but if something's not right at home... Or something's not right with one of your children. Does it not, if you're like me, affect everything you're trying to do and trying to accomplish? So so Keller's right. These are weighty issues. These are major areas. And he is saying to us, the gospel affects these areas. We don't just come to church and then go into marriage and children and work and, and do whatever we desire. No, God has a way. He has a plan. He has a desire for these particular areas, and he revolves everything around Jesus. Well, how do you know that? When the text I just read, I want to highlight what he said about Jesus that undergirds these areas. For example, when he addressed the wives, he said to them to, sub- to have an attitude of submission because this is what? Fitting in the Lord. Why be submissive in any area, any of us? Because it fits the Lord and His submissiveness. Verse 20, why 
should servants be obedient? Because this is well-pleasing to the Lord. God looks down, and He sees who you are and what you're doing. And there are certain things that please Him and certain things that don't please Him. Why should we obey? Because this is pleasing to the Lord. We are to work with sincerity of heart because we are to fear the Lord. Have reverence for Him. In verse 23, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. In verse 24, we are working hopefully for a reward that we believe is going to come from the Lord. Verse 24, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Verse Chapter 4, verse 1, he tells the earthly masters that they have a heavenly master in heaven. He is the Lord, therefore be just and be fair. So what I want to highlight is that he relates everything to the Lord. Fitting in the Lord, pleasing to the Lord, fearing the Lord, serving heartily the Lord from the Lord. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. You have a master and Lord in heaven. What is he saying? Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is Lord over every aspect of life. Why? Well, he's God's son. He's our atonement. God raised him from the dead and vindicated him and glorified him and exalted him. So let's back up and let's say, if Jesus is Lord over everything, then he, according to Paul, is Lord over marriage. Let's look at verses 18 and 19 in particular. This is what I wanted to assign to Bryson. <laughs> Wives, be subject or submissive to your husbands. Well, there's really no controversy there. It's simply put what God calls all of us to do in particular areas of life, but the wife particularly has this blessing of out of love and reverence for what Jesus did in his submission to the Heavenly Father and his will, this is a way that a wife can choose. She's not called to submit to every man, but to choose to marry someone whom she can submit to and who is going to love her as Christ loves the church, meaning he is going to lay down his life for her on a regular, continual basis, which is what verse 19 means. Husbands agape, a self-giving, self-sacrificing, continual devotion toward their wives and don't allow any bitterness to come up in your heart against them. Keep uh, mortifying that. And I've had women tell me, boy, if he does that, if he does verse 19, if he loves me as Christ loved the church, then I won't have any problem doing verse 18. In fact, I went to a wedding yesterday. It was a beautiful wedding. Anna Jones and, and, and Walt Green. They used to sit in here over there in, on, on the right, kind of where Johnny and Patsy are. They attended here quite a while. They were married yesterday. Kurt did the wedding. It's a beautiful wedding. But when they got to the vows and Kirk, the pastor, asked, Will you, Walt, do this, 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 and this? Walt said, I will. When they got to Anna the bride, and she was committing to her part of the vows, which went a lot like what we're saying here. Never heard a response quite like this. She said, I really will. <laughs> you could just feel the sincerity. You could feel the love. You could feel the submissiveness 
to Christ and his demand upon husbands and wives in the way. So God, God designed marriage for his glory and for our good. But listen to this. The fall, the fact that we are sinners, has distorted marriage. It's made it very difficult, has it not? Well, it's difficult for all of us. It was difficult for Adam and Eve. In fact, God said to Adam and Eve, following the fall, following their sin, you know what he said to Eve? And the Hebrew works this out. You are going to want to control him, and he is going to want to dominate you. There's the whole issue right there. Because of the fall and because we're sinful and selfish and we all look out for number one and want what's best for us, God gave them a warning from the beginning. Marriage is going to be difficult because you've chosen poorly. You've chosen, you're going to want to control him and he's going to want to dominate you. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, reverses all of, of that where she now should desire to submit to him and he should desire rather than want to dominate her, lay down his life for her. So the gospel changes our hearts and reverses the effect of the fall. But let's be honest, this is a process. And so half of marriages today end in divorce. Look at our culture and what we teach and what we see about marriage. I think back to years ago, I saw All in the Family. How many of you remember Archie and Edith, All in the Family? A lot of you more mature people remember that. <laughs> Years into their marriage, Edith says, Archie, do you love me? She says, you don't ever tell me that you love me. And he says, Edith, did I tell you I loved you when we got married? She said, yeah. He says, if I change my mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> that type of mentality. I was talking to one couple, major marriage difficulties. I mean, going through some of the... The biggest Mack trucks you can face in marriage, testing the, the structure of their particular bridge. And a guy came to me, you know, in confession and in tears and, and wanted to build up his marriage. And I gave him, you know, some, some biblical things to think about. And then I said, you know, you, you really ought to start dating your wife. Date your wife. Remember how you pursued her and loved her and, you know, moved toward her and let, date your wife. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to date my wife. And he left with encouragement. Ran into him a couple months later. Now, they are not associated at all with this church. So don't go looking around trying to figure out who I'm talking about. <laughs> he comes up to me. I says, man, how are things going? He says, man, they're going much better. Then he says, what was that you said that I should do with my wife? I said, date your wife. Date your wife. <laughs> So even when we get it and we accept it, we have a hard time grasping it and continuing to put it into practice. Now, I can't go on and on about this because there's so many other areas for us to look at in this particular text. But simply put, let me say this. The, the strength to submit and the strength to agape, listen, they were both demonstrated by Jesus and they are both given to us by Jesus for marriage and for other areas of life in which we are to submit in love, but particularly for marriage. So if you need submission, where do you go? Well, you go to the cross. And you see Jesus saying, or you go to Gethsemane, 
and you hear him saying, Father, not my will, but your will be done, where Jesus submitted and surrendered completely to the Father's plan. And husbands, if you needed to, to lay down your life for your wife and love her like Christ, you too, you too go to the cross. And you hear him saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I've got to move on because there's also parenting. And you know I got a lot of that. <laughs> Jokingly and, and graciously. Not only is Jesus Lord over the marriage, but Jesus is Lord over the family. One of my boys told someone in nursery years ago on a Sunday morning, things are serious at our house. And, and they're still serious in the pastor's house. Listen, God designed the parent-child relationship. Listen. God designed the parent-child relationship for His glory and for our good. Now, because in verse 21, fathers are the... I like to picture an orchestra where the father is, is the uh, conductor of the orchestra in the life of the family and the home. Now, in other places, like Ephesians and Peter, the Bible dresses both fathers and mothers. But in this particular case, he says, Fathers, look, don't wear out your children exasperate. What in the world does that mean? And listen to one commentator. A child frequently irritated by over-severity or injustice to which nevertheless it must submit acquires a spirit of sullen resignation leading to despair. In other words, don't make your children just give up because they can never please you. And you continue to scold and you continue to berate. Paul says that will embitter them and that will exasperate them. And they'll want to throw in the towel. Fathers don't do that. So the second half of verse 21 implies so that they may not lose heart. So what's the role of a parent? Many, but one of the roles is so that our children will not lose heart so that they will have encouragement. And let's be honest, the fall has distorted parenting and made it very difficult as marriage is difficult because of the fall and because we're sinners and because of the curse. So too, parenting is difficult. My wife said the other day that she saw a meme, something on the internet that, that said something like this. Uh, she said, my neighbor yelled so loudly at her children that I brushed my teeth and went to bed. <laughs> Somebody else said that parenting was a lot like golf. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, and it has lots of hazards. You take the ideal family on television like the Brady Bunch, which I've talked to you recently. We've been watching the old episodes of the Brady Bunch. You know, here's a story, right, of a man named Brady who's busy with three boys of his own. And he finds the perfect match with her three children. They get together. It's the Brady Bunch. On screen, everything looks ideal. They've even got Alice, the housekeeper, to help. But then I started reading outside the screen life in reality. And off screen, their lives were a disaster. On screen, <laughs> everything's controlled. Man, I wish we could live like that. But then you start reading reality, and it's very different. So he says to children, be obedient to parents in all things. This, by the way, is the first commandment with a promise. 
And our children learn to reverence and respect the authority that that they and we are to have for God in the home as they respect and obey mom and dad. Now, where are we as children and as parents to get the two things Paul talks about? Obedience and encouragement. Children obey, parents encourage. Where are you going to get that stuff? Where are the resources for obedience? Again, they're in Jesus. Remember why I started the sermon by saying it? Wives, let it fit the Lord. Children, as unto the Lord. Fathers, you're thinking too about the Lord. So where am I going to get this encouragement that I need to give to my wife and my children? I get it from Jesus. What an encourager. The greatest encouragement I've ever heard in my life Truly I say to you, this day you shall be with me in paradise. Well, who was that to? That was to the thief dying beside him. Look throughout the ministry of Jesus. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone, right? Look at how encouraging Jesus was, and look at the encouragement that the cross is. What about obedience? Well, I've already gave you that. He's completely surrendered and submitted to the Father's will to obey the plan to be the atonement on our behalf. So we already have the lesson in marriage and in parenting, you got to keep going back to Christ. you got to keep returning to the gospel. you got to go back to Gethsemane. you got to go back to the cross. you got to go back to the empty tomb. you got to keep going back to the gospel to get the strength and encouragement that you need to be a husband and to be a father. Or to be a wife and to a mother. Personal application. How are you doing in these areas? What do you need to change about these areas? Some of you need to take the selection process in these particular areas seriously. But then the bulk of what he talks about is not marriage or the family. The bulk of what he talks about is work. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? In verse 22... He starts to address the many within the church that would have been slaves. Now, when we picture slavery, a lot of you think to gone with the wind. And what slavery looked like predating the Civil War here in our own country, that's not what slavery was quite like in the Roman Empire. For one thing, it didn't have the racial dimension that slavery, as we think about it in this particular country, does. There's a lot of differences And so Paul was in no position to radically overthrow the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire. It wasn't even his goal. As I said earlier, the things that the gospel and scripture puts into place led to the eradication of slavery. In almost every culture in the world up to to this point, it does still exist in in different contexts in, in certain cultures. But Paul's goal was to preach the gospel and have the gospel set People ultimately free from within, regardless of their circumstances or situations. Does that make sense? That's why he says, look, slaves, I know that we're sinners living in a sinful world, and there is no ideal work environment. If you find the perfect workplace, don't go there, you'll mess it up. It's kind of like the perfect church. There are no perfect bosses. There are no perfect subordinates. There's no perfect workplace because we're all sinners. So what does he say? In everything, obey those who are your masters on earth. Why or how? Not externally. 
Not just while they're looking. <laughs> well, who can motivate me to do that? You know, when I read this, I thought about when I was playing rec recreation football down in Franklin, and our coach would assign us to run 10 laps. You guys go run 10 laps. And there we go trotting off. We're running our laps. Well, the coaches were adults, and so they'd take their eyes off of us, and they start talking together. <laughs> but when the coach wasn't looking, guess what we were doing? Man, we were cutting corners. <laughs> Then he'd look up real quick and he said, I see you cutting corners over there. And he would have signed two or three more laps. But what he's saying is, don't cut corners. It's God who sees you. And you're doing it for him. So if there is a job that you've been given, you do that job well, not because of your earthly boss and the consequences that he or she may or may not give, but we do what we do, not going through the motion, but with sincerity of heart. Why? Because God created us. He gave, uh, he gave us gifts and talents. And God looks down upon our work. And God can be well pleased with the job that you do, even though no one else may know, how to know what you're doing. Think about how frustrating it is sometimes when people don't know what we're doing. And we feel unappreciated because they don't see what you do behind the scenes to do your particular job. Nobody else can relate to what you do because they're not you in your particular circumstance. And that's very frustrating as individuals. But we need to work with the idea that God sees and God cares, and God knows, and God is well pleased with what I do, whether my earthly boss or master, whoever, no matter what. So, so, so this is a radically changed heart, isn't it? I mean, only Jesus can do this. That I would work from the heart heartily as reverencing him, that I'm doing, that. look at verse 23, what an amazing verse. Whatever you do... <laughs> Do it with passion and love and the heart. Do it for the Lord. Don't do it for people. Now, the fall has distorted this. What are our motivations for work? Well, you know, I owe, I owe. It's off to work I go. <laughs> or as one popular group put it back in my day, everybody's working for the weekend. Or to get a little even edgier, what Johnny Paycheck say? <laughs> Take this job and shove it, right? One of the things from the fall is that work became very, very frustrating. God made it so. But work actually originated before the fall in paradise as God gave to man and woman the the cultivation of the ground and created in his image, we have something to do and something to work on, right? And he's saying what Jesus did for you on the cross is so important and who he is is so amazing that everything you do ought not to be motivated by what people are seeing or thinking or even the, the, the paycheck, but, but motivated by your love for God and your love for Jesus, where are we going to get this kind of work? Well, what does the gospel teach? That Jesus finished his work for us, completely satisfied the righteousness 
and the demands of God. And what it, what it means to be a Christian is to rest and abide eternally on the finished work of Christ. And if you want heart for work and heart for Jesus in your work, look at his heart and what he did for you when you deserved the very opposite. I would venture to say that Jesus put his whole heart into the gospel work he did for you and me. Did he not? In fact, that's an extreme understatement. For he did it for the Father and for love and for us and for the Father's glory. Where do you get that kind of heart? You know, you got to have heart, right? Where do we get that kind of passion? In Luke 24, they got it from Christ. As he explained to them from the Old Testament that the Messiah would die as an atoning sacrifice and as a servant. Where do you get the heart to say from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Where do you get the thirst for work that, as Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And what do they do? They give him gall and vinegar to drink as he's dying there and thirst on the cross. Look at what he did for us. And he is saying that he sees you and he cares about you. And he is going to reward you. What an encouragement. Gina, here it is, Luke 14, 14. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He tells slaves this. Slaves. So if a slave can be commanded by the gospel to do his work well, not for people or not for a paycheck that's never coming, but for the Lord, then how does that apply to me? Well, surely I ought to preach the gospel joyfully because you people pay me well. But my motivation ultimately has to be for the Lord and for the Lord alone because him only shall you serve. Now, here's the other side of that. He also warns us. Listen, from this text, you better treat people justly and fairly because because you have a master in heaven who cares about justice and fairness. And he also says, you may think that we are free to do whatever we want to and say whatever we want to say, But look at what verse 25 says. If you do wrong, you will receive what? Come on, you're smart people. What's the word? It starts with a C. Consequences. We are free, but we are not free from the consequences that God has tied to all our behaviors. We reap what we sow. So, boy, there's a whole lot here, isn't there? Where are you going to get this kind of heart, this kind of life? I I kept saying it. From Jesus and Jesus alone. He did this for you, and then he will inspire you to do it for others. Now, you may not feel like you can do it for others. But let me say this. My personal experience and, and what I've read and what I've seen, which isn't much, but it's worth something. If you will do the right thing for the Lord, in time, he will give you the emotions and the feelings to do it also for others. But we've got to start by doing it for the Lord. I think back to Corey Tim Boom, who did one of the greatest works in forgiveness that you'll ever see. She struggled with it. But she preached forgiveness, preached forgiveness, preached forgiveness. And if you've ever read her book, The Hiding Place, in that she tells about how 
at the end of a church service where she had preached on forgiveness, and her whole family, the Germans and the Nazis, had killed her whole family in concentration camps, and then she, through a clerical error, was set free. They had hidden Jews and enabled Jews to live and escape, and the Germans locked up her and her family. And, and I think, if my memory is correct, she was the only one who lived. So she travels and speaks in all these churches about grace and forgiveness and the gospel. And she's doing a really good job preaching and sharing. But at the end of one of her messages, a man comes up to her and says, I really enjoyed your talk on forgiveness. And he expressed to her his regret because he was an SS trooper and he had been one of the guards. And she recognized him immediately, right off. She knew who this guy was and what he had done. And as he extended out his hand, she felt like, I can't do this. I've been talking about forgiveness and speaking about but in that moment she said to herself, I can't do it. But then she started thinking about Jesus. And she started thinking about how wrong it would be for her to receive his forgiveness and not pass that on to this German who had been instrumental in the deaths of some of her family. And so out of obedience to Christ and thinking of Christ, she did it for Christ. And she says, as she extended her hand to offer him forgiveness, she felt forgiveness from Jesus come totally through her body to him as she prayed, Jesus, I can't do this, but you can do this in and through me. And that's exactly what happened. So what I'm saying is do it for him and then he will give you the strength and the ability, his ability to submit, to obey, to humble, to serve reverently in heart, to do all of these things. But it's a dependency upon Christ, which is why chapter 4 verse 2 says you've got to devote yourself to prayer. You've got to be praying. You've got to be grateful. You've got to have a kingdom perspective. You've got to have I had all these points in verses 2 through 6 that undergird the bridge in the process because they keep us reliant and dependent and humble on Christ. So where are we going to get this kind of heart? Where are we going to get this type of life and witness? Only from the Lord. So then we got to back up and we got to start over. And we got to say, who is he and what has he done? And how am I going to appropriate it in my life, in my marriage, in my home, in my workplace? Everything that we do is to be from the heart and for the Lord. Amen? Only Christ has done this, and only Christ in us can begin to do this in a progressive way that will glorify God and strengthen us in the process. May we depend upon the cross of Christ in all these areas. Father, thank you for your grace to us, which teaches us today what you demand, what you expect. We need your spirit. Uh, we need to be continually devoted in prayer and our hearts to be changed so that our speech can be gracious. All this ties together, Lord. And I've only touched the surface. So give us hearts to dig deeper uh, into what this means and how we need to apply it. Because there's something for all of us to do in light of what you've done for us in the gospel. The work's already finished. 
And now we pray that we would heartily do the work you've called us to do in light of and fitting what you've already done on our behalf in the gospel. And we need your grace and strength to do it. And you will provide it, you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. The faithfulness of God is great. And that's where we look to draw strength for our own faithfulness and obedience. You come as we sing.
I want to read one verse before we uh, before I pray. This is in Malachi, uh, the third chapter and the tenth verse. It says, "Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this," says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. That's a promise from God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this promise. And Father, we say today, help us to have the courage to trust you in this promise. In Jesus' name, amen.
mountain you won't climb up coming after me. Snow wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. Amen. Before we sing doxology as our benediction, let's stand. Hey, I want to thank you so much, ladies, for that beautiful uh, offertory. Um, continue to pray for Vacation Bible School. Continue to pray for Miss Peggy Banks. She spent some time in the hospital this week and had a successful surgery. Uh, Miss Mildred McWhorter uh, has been moved to hospice in McDonough. Please pray for Miss Mildred. And Brian Swarsberg also was in the hospital this week. Let's continue to pray for uh, Brian. Amen. Have a blessed rest of the day. Catherine, would you come lead us? God from him how blessings Come join us for VBS this week.